Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio On this week's show, I'm joined by Thomas J. Miller. He's a beer author, and he's now dove into his first work of fiction. But that work of fiction has a lot to do with beer. So we're going to talk to Thomas about his new book, An Oktoberfest Death. And we're going to talk about brewing Oktoberfest this week on Homebrewing DIY. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, the show covers it all. On this week's show, we're going to talk to Thomas J. Miller, and we're going to talk to him about his new book, and we're going to talk to him about great ways to brew an Oktoberfest. Right now is the time to brew an Oktoberfest, considering it's February, March, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite favorite styles of beer but first i'd like to thank all of our patrons over at patreon it's because of you that this show can come to you week after week head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing diy and give it any amount your monthly support keeps this show coming to you week after week also there's another way to support the show if you head on over to coffee.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash homebrewing diy you can give one-time support and one-time support or monthly support any support is going to help this show another way to support the show is to write us a review if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts, just leave us a review just scroll to the bottom of the app you can see the five stars there right now and just leave us a star rating or you can type us out a full review if you do leave us a review i will read it on the air good or bad also if you head on over to podchaser.com 
if you're, for example, on an Android, the only way you would be able to leave us a review is to head to podchaser.com and that's forward slash homebrewing DIY. And there you can leave us a review. Podchaser is a pretty cool website as well. Think of it as like the IMDB of podcasting. You can discover a new podcast there, or you could even add us to a list of podcasts that you like and share that with a friend. So kind of a cool site. The last way to support the show is to head on over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and use our sponsor banners. You can use Adventures in Homebrewing. If you're going to buy something for your brewery, do it at Adventures in Homebrewing. Click on the link, and then they will know that we sent you. Also, if you bought a brew bag or if you buy Brewfather, those websites are all going to link straight from our site and support the show. And what is going on in my brewery right now? First of all, I am completely out of beer right now. I, ju- I, I made a, a hazy IPA that turned out so good, and it was so good that I drink it quite quickly. And I am out of beer. So uh, right now in the pipeline, though, I am going to do a, a Pilsner. I, I've got, I'm going to do a, a new Kvike Pilsner. And I'm still working on on those types of beers. And also, I think I'm going to make me a Saison. I, I'm due for one. But, uh, yeah. Well, that's it. Let's, let's jump into this week's show and talk to Thomas Miller about Oktoberfest. I'd like to welcome Thomas J. Miller. He's a prolific writer for the beer industry a home brewer since 1990, and he's worked as an assistant brewer in Germany and Wyoming. And among his publications, he is a regular contributor to BrewPub and Tips from the Pros. And he's a columnist for Brew Your Own Magazine. So, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. I'm excited to talk to you today. Culture, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Thomas, uh, I think that the first thing we should talk about, we're, we're going to get into talking about Oktoberfest, and I think the big reason we're going to talk about Oktoberfest today is because you've recently just written a book about, it's actually a fictional novel, but has, I, I think Oktoberfest plays a huge part in in this novel, and why don't you tell us a bit about the book you just wrote? Sure. Um, I, like, at the end of September, just published uh, a novel called An Oktoberfest Death, that's the title, um, been working on that novel for um, at least the last year prior to the onset of, of COVID and uh, had, had gotten to this uh, editing phase um, in, the, in the fall of 2019 before COVID hit. And then COVID gave me a great opportunity to really uh, push this, to this story to the end. It's the first in a series of what I call beer fiction, um, where uh, history, culture, uh, and beer uh, all kind of collide in a series of stories that's going to follow a main character by the name of Bethany R. Judge. And, and Bethany, you know, travels to Oktoberfest in this book, right? And and she, it, it's kind of a mystery novel, is that correct? That's right. It, so Bethany is a retired Buffalo police officer. Uh, I lived in Buffalo for five years, and it gives me a great place to uh, set the story from a, from a character perspective and to launch her out into a career uh, where she she decides to retire from being a police officer um, and discovers somewhat uh, magically for herself that she possesses this amazing 
uh, palate, this amazing ability to taste beers um, in ways that uh, don't come naturally to most other people. If anybody here knows what a master cicerone is, she's uh, unlike any other person in the world because she's able to rapidly uh, achieve the level of master cicerone or a beer expert. Um, the reality of becoming a master cicerone is far different than what I fictionalize in the story, but it allows me to kind of push my character into a, uh, a situation where she immediately uh, leaves from a, a divorced situation, travels over to Munich to uh, uh, sample and, and really taste firsthand the freshness of Bavarian beers during the Oktoberfest, but also all the different beer styles that would be available uh, to her in Munich. So there's plenty of opportunities for her to not just drink Oktoberfest beers, uh, but also uh, vice beers, like I'm drinking a vice beer right now, uh, uh, Helles style beers, a, a Bavarian Dunkel, um, and the like. So it's it's just a chance for her to travel over to Munich. And as it turns out, uh, on the first night, she overindulges, finds herself on a train to Salzburg, and wakes up beside a person who's been murdered in the train beside her. And from there, spends the rest of the novel unraveling the mystery. You know, I've had some hella hangovers, and I can say that that is one I've not had yet, and glad I haven't. But that being said, <laughs> <laughs> that being said, uh, you know, I I think that when we talk about Bavarian styles of beer, and specifically, you know, Bavarian lagers and and fest beers and Oktoberfests, I I have to admit that these types of beers. Having been a home brewer for a lot of years, I, I haven't been a home brewer since 1990, but I, I am pushing you know over a decade now of actively home brewing. I did brew my first batch of beer in 1998, so I did at least start in the 90s. But that being said, over time, I've gotten to a place where I think that lagers are really becoming probably some of my favorite beers out there. It's almost like, you know, we, we come from a, a world where everything was pushed to lager, lager, lager. We've gone into, you know, IPA land and lots of ales in the craft beer movement. And I think craft beer is still, at least specifically in the United States, stuck on the hazy IPA right now. But that being said, yeah. as somebody who makes beer and understands the craft that's behind these Bavarian style lagers and the real artistry i i would say I, to me it's one of my personal favorite styles of beer so uh, how long have you been making lager style beers personally i have tried making lager style beers from the onset of becoming a home brewer and um, the reason for that is just simple that i I started experimenting with with drinking, uh, admittedly, in high school, but it wasn't like I was um, just drinking all the time in high school. I actually had the opportunity uh, between my sophomore and junior years of high school to travel over to um, Germany for the very first time. And so my exposure to beer at a pretty young age was around the, sort of the, the beauty of the way that, that German beer is served, the presentation of it, right? Not just the taste or the flavor or the effects of drinking the beer, but I can remember so clearly the long pours of a German Pilsner glass, like the amount of time that it would take to pour a Pilsner into a, a glass in a bar in Germany, um, and just becoming entranced with the presentation process uh, of the beer. So much so that when I turned returned home to the United States, my locker at school was actually filled with pictures of, of beers from German magazines that were available at the time, right? It's like, I just loved 
the imagery of it. And so when I started brewing in 1990, uh, I tried my best to learn how to make lager style beers. And what I can, what I can tell you is that if there's one thing to, um, be clear about with making successful lager beers is that you can't cut corners on primarily fermentation temperatures. If you're going to make a successful, uh, lager beer outside of everything that you do with your ingredients, outside of everything you do with your grain bill, outside of everything you do on the hot side of brewing a lager style beer, success comes with managing the fermentation temperatures and the lagering process. If you can do that right, I think that you can do a pretty good job making a, uh, a German style lager as a home brewer. And personally for me, I, I think that right now is the best time to start thinking and, and I've done shows on things like new order loggers recently where we talk about doing pressure fermentations and I've done mm-hmm. shows on, on doing, using certain clean Kvike yeast to try to get, uh, what I call the pseudo logger, right. And, and mm-hmm. making those styles. I actually had a Doppelbach this week that was made with a Kvike beer that was totally up there with a, a, a lagered beer as far as is quality and craft that this was made. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for me, when, if you're going to make a traditional lager right now and you're going to make an Oktoberfest beer, you're right now's the time, right? Because by the time you got through the fermentation and you're going to get through that lager phase, you, you're, you're looking and, and we're talking about traditionally made the idea and history behind it is that, you know, Oktoberfest and fest beers were traditionally made in the late wor- winter, early spring to be enjoyed in the fall. Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's it's hard for us sometimes to remember that the Oktoberfest is over 200 years old, yeah. early 1800s, right? And to, and to place that in the context of what was available to brewers back in the early 1800s or like pre-industrial revolution, you know, they didn't have glycol they didn't have electricity you know they didn't have all these resources that come um, naturally to to large breweries you know nano breweries or for us specifically home breweries um, things that we can take advantage of to manage uh temperature right and and in fact just the other day i actually very specifically did a double batch of uh, hellas lager purposely because this time of year for the uh for the chilling of the wort i i have a immersion chiller not a huge fan of the immersion chillers but uh, it is clean uh, easy to clean it is kind of quick and fancy in that way but i think that it takes a lot of of effort a lot of of water to kind of run through it to get uh, a good chill uh post boil compared to a counterflow chiller but the reason that i did it was i ran a hose from my outside uh spigot uh, because it was running at ground temperatures that were very, very cold. Now we're having a nice cold snap here in the Midwest. And so that allowed me to get my, both my beers as I finished them down from boiling temperatures to like 48 degrees to pitch within, you know, 15 minutes or so, just running water through that hose and, and through the, through the counterflow chiller against the work. That to me, you know, to your point, Coulter, this is the time to be making all sorts of lagers. And yeah, Oktoberfest beers fall to that to really to the style that's more considered a Meritzen. When I when I talk about my novel An Oktoberfest Death, I originally had it titled A Meritzen Murder, um, but changed it, I took a little liberty and changed it to Oktoberfest because, you know, 
the, the BJCP guidelines do uh, consider the Oktoberfest a style in a sense that the Meritzen is the more traditional name. And, uh, and you know, Meritzen in German means March. And traditional German breweries took advantage of the cold weather, took advantage of the cold water, took advantage of the fact that this was the time of year to complete brewing, complete fermenting, and then start aging in cold cellars so as to limit as best as possible the potential for uh, off flavors that could happen in a pre-refrigeration time. Exactly. And and I'll, I'll use an example that is close to me. I have a gentleman who's in my homebrew club and he only ferments well he actually only brews beer in the winter because he has a dirt cellar that he ferments in right and Mm -hmm. he actually makes all of his oktoberfests and lagers in february and march because the cellar temperature in his dirt cellar is the right is like the perfect temperature for fermenting lagers and once he gets into mid-april the temperature just gets a, a touch too warm. It gets in the mid sixties and he can't do it. And so he actually, by the time summer and that, and that's when he does more of his ales. And then by the time May or June rolls around, he's done brewing for the year. And he actually, when you ask him, he brews with the seasons. It's a very traditional way of brewing and that's at a homebrew mm-hmm. level. And he does a great job and he has some of the best beers in my club. And when you look at the traditional way that these lagers were brewed, that is very much the reason why is that, you know, you think about it, you have this dirt cellar and in the summer it can get very, very warm and you're just not going to have the type of control you get when you're looking at it because having it in a dirt cellar is still going to keep it a generally static temperature, right? It's not going to adjust between day and night so much, but over once the overall climate changes for the season, you are going to get those types of temperature swings, right? Absolutely. And not only that, right, it's when you're dealing with ambient temperature and then the, the temperature increases that come during the fermentation process. Um, if yeah. you are looking at a room, you know, I don't know what the cell temperature there was, but if it's 62 degrees and that's even rather warm, right, if you're down yeah. into the 50s and you start fermenting, you're going to pick up several degrees of temperature um, during the fermentation process that are still going to potentially throw off flavors into that beer. I admire this gentleman that you're talking about and the fact that he's able to do that, that he has a cellar temperature that's cold enough. What I, you know, back to my story of trying to brew as a, as a homebrew early on and not having access to um, that type of resource, I found precisely uh, the sorts of, of issues that you're describing of, of just not being able to produce a, a, a lager of any quality. The, the true saving grace for me as a home brewer was making the decision to get a a decent sized um, a freezer, chest freezer, and a external thermostat so that I can control the temperature. And then um, I, I use an anvil brewing system with some awesome stainless steel bucket fermenters um, that have a nice lid that you can just take right on and off and some great valves. Um, and they fit side by side. I could fit three of those stainless steel buckets inside the um, inside the chest freezer that I have. And then I, with that external thermostat, 
you know, I mentioned having the cold water to, to, from the hose to bring the temperature down rapidly. I can get the, the temperature down to, in the right weather conditions, down to 50 degree pitch temperature. Um, you know, maybe if it was a slightly, slightly warmer day, maybe I can get to 55 and then stick it inside that, that chest freezer briefly to get the temperature down to what I consider to be a good, like 50 degree pitching temperature. But then from there, I can ratchet the thermostat down a little further. Uh, I have it set. So my double Hellas bash that I just did right now, I have it set to, to sit right around 46 degrees right now at high Croizen, figuring that within the internal temperature uh, of the, of the fermentation vessel, we're probably sitting closer to 50 degrees thereabouts. Yeah. And I think that that's one thing that a lot of home brewers don't factor, specifically if you're a beginning home brewer, you don't think about the temperature increase that you get from yeast activity and mm-hmm. you need to factor that into your ambient temperature when you're trying to get a certain temperature for your fermentation personally i use a tilt hydrometer that is actually submitted in the wart directly and so i get a temperature reading that i think is a, a obviously a true temperature to the, the the actual temperature of the wart and so that's the that is the temperature that matters more to me or using something like a thermo well in your fermenter is also going to give you a much better temperature reading than what you're going to get if you just kind of take a temperature probe and stick it on the side of your bucket or on the side of your fermenter. Stainless yeah. steel fermenters, I think, are going to give you a better reading just because they they do pass the heat through. A little, they're, they're, they're a little thermal, more thermally dynamic, and so I think that they are going to give you a better reading than if you have like a plastic fermenter. But still, even then, the, the temperature in the middle of that liquid is very different than the temperature on the outside of that liquid as well, right? I agree 100%. I kind of go with the attitude of a judicious use of information tends to turn out decent results. And that's what I find yep. um, with with the setup that I have, right? It's like, I know that I can get a pretty good under, I'm doing five gallon batches, right? It's like, I'd, I'd love to do more, but some of it has to do with, you know, what can I actually manhandle and lift and, 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 you know, position in this chest freezer and, you know, how much can I actually drink? Uh, at any given time. So five gallons always seems to be a pretty good uh, batch size for me. And, you know, you put it inside of this vessel as I talk about, and I can set that temperature and, you know, just an eyeball guess of a five degree increase seems to work out pretty well because the, the, the quality of the product that uh, I've been turning out has really, has really been great. And it's, uh, it's, it's really neat to go from that early stage of, of home brewing where you might use glass carboys and, and plastic buckets um, and, and, you know, maybe brew on, on your stovetop to start looking at some of the really awesome uh, new tools uh, and fun equipment that's out there for home brewers. I, you know, I, I, I made decisions to get rid of old equipment and just start experimenting with different things. And as much as uh, it's tempting sometimes to want to uh, spend a lot on brewing systems because there's some awesome things out there. These uh, these electric brewing systems, once you get used to the, the the efficiency of those systems and understand the process and tweak a little bit, particularly around the lotter and the sparge, uh, I found that it works really really well and um, and it doesn't take up much space and it's and it's a yeah. good price point. Yeah, I, I got to admit the the advent of the electric all-in-one systems that have come out, I would say in the last five years is kind of really when these have hit the market hard. I think the first one was obviously the Brewfather, and then you have your mm-hmm. Brewfather clones that are 
all ranges of price ranges, right? But yeah. any of these systems are going to get, personally, any of these systems are going to give you as good of a beer as you could make with a any brew in a bag system out there with a burner. And I also think that these systems are going to give you uh, a very high quality beer. Because like, for example, I personally don't sparge. I, I, it sounds like you do, but if you're into sparging, they have a really cool setup to be able to factor in your sparge. You just have to have a little bit of hot water on the side and it's not that hard. And I think that that the, the ease of use of these systems, I think are going to make it so homebrewing is more accessible to more people. Yeah. With the Anvil system, I've made some, I don't want to say like distinct modifications, but outside of the way that they describe using the, the, the there's a pump that came with the Anvil system. There's yep. a hose set up. There's a way to, to pull the, the grain basket out post mash. And then to like, you can sort of set it up on this little, um, this little bracket, I suppose. I actually run I, I run a, a, I sort of do a forelock throughout the mash to get good clarity, but also to manage the temperature uh, of the overall liquid that's, you know, cause I feel like there's a temperature probe that's only at the very bottom of the system, but it does like, to, yeah. you know, what you're saying about the fermenter, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you what's actually going on inside the mash bed. And so I, I do a forelock throughout the entire mash so that I'm getting some degree of consistency around what the temperature is. And when I mash, and this is true with the Oktoberfest style, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Um, you know, I work through a temperature range. I, I start, I mash it in a low temperature. I typically shoot for like the low end of the brewer's window, as they call it, like right around like 135 degrees Fahrenheit. And I just let it rest there and I get the temperature kind of set through recirculation. And then I just use the, the, um, the temperature control on the system to start moving up through rest phases until mash out at 170. And then when I elevate the grain out and it starts to rinse off, I set up that pump in the long hose and just make sure that the lid on the top of it is set in such a fashion as to not tip off. And then I just continue to recirculate uh, uh, the wort through the grain bed for a period of time um, to, again, get that consistent 170 to feel like I'm getting a, a good extraction from the grain. Um, and then after about maybe 15 to 20 minutes of, of doing that and, and feeling like I've hit a good 170 is when I'll come in and I've, you know, use about three to four extra gallons for sparging and then I'm ready to boil. The one thing that I don't have access to yet just because of limitations from a, from a space perspective is uh, a 240 volt setup on my system. So it is a little frustrating to slow boil. Um, so sometimes what I'll do if I'm in a bit of a hurry is I'll actually pull some of the some of the, uh, 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 you know, during the boil, I'll pull some off and run it into the kitchen and get it boiling there to try to help goose the thing up a little faster. Outside of that, I, it's been a great system. Yeah. One, one trick that uh, I've learned is that if you get a, like a, a mesh screen over the top of mine, I have a mash and boil, which is pretty much in the, in the, and it's a 110. If I get a mash, instead of a lid, I can put a mesh screen over the top of it during the high boil. So it still has enough to boil off, but it also holds enough heat in to give me a little bit more of a vigorous boil. So quick uh, there that you can uh, do to, yeah, to help it kind of work and still not have problems with like DMS or something like that. Right. Yeah. You gotta boil uh, it hard. Yeah. Gotta boil them hard. So l let's talk about Oktoberfest and how to make a, or, or, a, or a Martzen and how to make a, a great one. Why, why don't you walk me through maybe because it sounds to me like you're you're step mashing you're you're doing a lot of the things that you know even when i make loggers with with my logger shortcuts 
there are certain things I do uh, in all of my batches. For example, I step mash them all. Um, I'm into at least doing a single decoction, if not a double or triple, depending on the style. What, what, what does yours look like? And what does your mask, your, what does your, what's a, what's the recipe look like? And then B, what does the mash schedule look like? Okay. So first I'm, I'll be a little bit of a, of a German snob since I lived over in Germany and have, have worked in a brewery in Munich. So officially it's called a Märzen, right? So in, yep. in Germany, March is pronounced Merits. And as you mentioned earlier, um, Oktoberfest were traditionally brewed, or Fest beers and Oktoberfest Merzens, as they're called, were brewed in March during that end, tail end of the proper weather for sort of cold weather brewing so that it could then be you know, brewed, fermented, aged, and then served during what then ultimately became the Oktoberfest. So Merzen uh, derive that name from, from just the time that it was brewed. Right. Um, what I, what I shoot for in my, so there's, and then on top of that, I should be pointed out that there's a Meritzen style for the Oktoberfest and then there's a fest beer style. The, the Meritzen was the traditional style that, uh, really arose early on in the period of time of the Oktoberfest. Like the first Oktoberfest was in 1810. No one can necessarily say for sure what the beer tasted like, or what the recipes were. I don't think there's any specific indication of what the recipes were, but beer back then tended to be darker, tended to um, promote more of these Munich or Vienna style grains. Some of that was because they wanted uh, a beer that was stronger, maybe a bit more full bodied because it actually assisted um, in helping to cover up any potential off flavors that might occur throughout the summer, right? Like hops, in today's day and age can be used as a masking element uh, also for some, uh, let's say, less favorable characteristics that could arise in beer. Well, so can grain, right? If you use the right grain and you know, manage your, your brew, um, you can utilize grain as a different way to mask off, off putting elements. And so it's really later in the, the mid 1800s or so that there's some suggestions in a first version of a modern Märzen um, came out somewhere around like 1840, 1841, supposedly brewed by Spaten Brewery in Munich. But then later on in 1872, there was uh, another brewery that became part of the broader Spaten lineage um, that introduced the very first October Märzen. And that beer kind of, that Märzen style was the main beer at the Oktoberfest for about the next hundred years. And it was then in like, the, the mid to we're in the mid 1900s and into the 1970s that you started to see a move towards now what's called a fest beer. And the fest beer is more like a German style Helles, but it's on steroids. So both Meritzen and, and fest beer fall into the same um, uh, ABV category, somewhere between 5.8 and 6.3% by BJCP standards. What I tend to shoot for is a little bit lower on that scale because I, I prefer to drink a little bit more myself than to, um, you know, to, to push up the alcohol content and my, my nights a little sooner. And I prefer to drink, or I should say brew, the, the, um, the Meritzen style. There was an article that I wrote for uh, Brew Your Own Magazine quite some time ago. It was a Tips from the Pros article, and it's actually available um, uh like outside of the firewall, people can search my pen name, Thomas J. Miller, 
And the title of the article um, is called Using Munich and Vienna Malts. Um, it's a, again, it's a free article and it's short, but what it talks about, it has a couple of different interviews, just short comments from a couple of brewers uh, that were working in the industry at the time that I wrote this one from a, a gentleman that was up in Minneapolis and another from a, a brewer in Chilton, Wisconsin. And, and basically what, what they argued um, is that there tends to be some confusion around how Munich malts versus Vienna malts um, are best used in certain styles. And, and while they, they tend to be seen as the same, they're actually a bit different. Vienna malt um, has more enzymatic power, so it can be used as more as a base malt, whereas Munich malt doesn't necessarily have that same enzymatic power and can't necessarily be relied upon um, as a base malt. And so when I've worked to develop my, my Meritzen recipe, um, I've kind of utilized that the ideas that were generated in that article and, and uh, sort of sampled around that idea of what do I do if I want a sort of a grainy, uh, bready characteristic in my Meritzen, in my Oktoberfest style, um, and I, if I want to push the Vienna malt. And so um, what I've done is create a, a grain bill that's been pushing about 57, actually the last one I did this past fall, I, I did 57% Vienna malt, uh, 29% Munich malt, and then at 14% of a floor malted Bohemian Pilsner. And it produced this, you know, from a flavor perspective, uh, as, it, as it relates to the way that they describe the way that a, 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 a Meritzen should come across. It's like everything that you would read about in a profile. It was great. It was bready. This is rich. The color was like pushing this like dark amber. It, the, the yeast that I used, which was an imperial uh, global yeast from uh, Vine Stefan, just it, you know, with nice lagering, it cleared out. It was just crystal clear, um, you know, beautiful in the glass. The mouthfeel was, was like smooth and creamy. It just had such great texture through that um, step mashing process that you just mentioned. Um, I did not over carbonate it, but I wanted to have enough carbonation that it would kind of fall to that um, uh, sort of moderate uh, spritziness on the tongue uh, that kind of would help eliminate any thinness. Um, and then just really from a flavor perspective, um, th th there's a word or a, a phrase in German that's called uh, liquid bread is what they call beer, flüssiges Brot. And so I was going for that idea of like drinking a glass of, of bread concept. And I felt like this recipe, I, I plan on brewing it again this, this time around. It's, it really seemed to um, really crush my expectations. I want to do a side-by-side -side of, an, of an Oktoberfest Meritzen style and a Fest beer. Um, so like that amped up uh, Hellas um, for this year's Oktoberfest festivities here locally. And what, what kind of hops are you using in that beer? Yeah, so I grow Hallatower hops on the side of my house. And and so I'm a bit of a purist in that regards. But that being said, it's a little bit difficult growing hops to know with certainty what you're going to get out of that from a bittering perspective. And so I tend to have a little um, apprehension about using those as a bittering hop in my beer and outside of the fact that leaf hops can be a little bit troublesome. So, so I do tend to use my homegrown Hallatower hops as a mild finishing hops and things like the Hellas that I just brewed because it is appropriate for that style, not overly, uh, uh, from a hop perspective, not overly flavored or aromatic, but uh, it does fit that style. But I tend to be a purist and I stick with what I like. Um, and that's the hollow tower hops. And I use the pellets, which fall, um, at about 
the ones that I had this last year were, were um, 3.7 AAUs. And so I boiled about 1.25 ounces for 70 minutes and then um, 40 minutes, about another 0.7 ounces. And so the, the IBUs on that were about 24. Yeah. And, and that's totally within the, the BJCP style guidelines right there. It's, it's a little yeah. bit more of a bitter beer. You're, you're not looking for that, like 10 to 15 IBUs, the mid twenties are, are it, that's pretty much perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. Uh, yeah. And then what, what does the fermentation schedule look like? So I think, um, as I mentioned, I try to, I try to set my, when I'm pitching, I try to get the yeast uh, pitched at around 50 degrees. I think that that's appropriate for these lager style um, yeasts. You don't want to risk any shock at higher temperatures um, and then try to bring the temperature down fast. It's better if you don't have access to cold enough temperatures through a counterflow chiller or immersion chiller. I think you're far better off closing down the fermentation vessel and just waiting before pitching. You can't force this situation. Um, you don't want to create any ester production, nothing like that. So I was able to get uh, uh, pitched at around 50 degrees. And then I knocked the temperature down, as I mentioned, um, to 48 degrees and let it sit there for uh, six days, roughly. And then I start slowly after six days, um, bumping it up just a little bit at a time, two days uh, at 52 degrees. Um, and then I did uh, three days at 56 degrees and then finished with three additional days uh, at 68 uh, degrees Fahrenheit for a diacetyl rest. And um, then after that, I crashed to 33 degrees and just let it sit. So I let it sit for at least a month, but I would recommend even longer than that to really just give it a chance to, um, to, to really mellow. These beers benefit um, just from from time resting when i so when i worked in the brewery in in uh, munich uh, one of the things that always will strike me forever it certainly struck me at the time was walking through the fermentation cellars and seeing these you know massive fermentation tanks that were just covered in ice just covered in ice right so the the, the beers that were inside those tanks were maturing at basically freezing temperatures are pretty darn close to it. Right. So the, the, yeah. the benefits to the beer, um, you, you just can't rush the process. And I know there's a tendency to want to make things go faster, but we should all consider ourselves fortunate to have access to all kinds of great beers that you can buy. So if you can just be patient with the stuff that you're making, I think that you'll find you get yourself in that rotation of, of brewing and give, just give your beer more time, your homebrew more time. Um, uh, you'll be far better off for it. Yeah, I I think that the first lesson I learned is is a new home brewer was stop messing with your beer and just let it do its thing. And I found that I ended up with a lot better beer. It's shocking how that's probably the best piece of advice you can give a new brewer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and we what, have the luxury last... we have the luxury of not needing to generate revenue, right? It's if you're True. if you're a brewery, you know, it's if you're a brewery and you're like you got to get stuff in the mouth of your customers to pay the bills, and and so you, you have to turn product when you're when you're working for the business, so to speak. But when you're a home brewer, you have the ability to say, all right, 
here's what I'm going to do. Like I'm, I'm already thinking in terms of here's my rotation for the next six months. Here's how I'm going to let these two helices ferment out. Here's what I plan to package them. And then here's the, the next thing that I'm going to move into. And I will continue because I have this, this uh, retrofitted chest freezer, I can continue to make lagers um, as long as I can manage to get the temp, the, the temperature of the work down quick enough for pitching. Right. I can, yeah. I have that luxury. Um, but, but it's like, I've already sort of mapped out in my mind what's going to happen and when I'm going to start moving over to ALS. Yeah, exactly. And, and one thing that, uh, you, you talked about using the Weinstefan yeast is, was that, is, is that a liquid yeast powdered yeast? Which, which one are you using? I have never ever used powdered yeast, dry yeast. Um, and, the, and to my knowledge, it's possible that I've been to more more um, breweries, small breweries that have utilized uh, these these dry yeast strains. And the only place that I know did, I didn't like the beer, so it kind of set me in a position of thinking um, <laughs> that perhaps I, I will never use dry yeast. I uh, I guess it's just you know I'm being a little bit uh, snobby, I suppose, to say that I, I really want to. Um, to try to be as pure about it as possible and, and, you know, utilize what I know as a home brewer for all the time that I've, I've done this, that the best yeast out there was always the liquid yeast, right? Whether it's white labs or Y yeast. Now I'm using the Imperial yeast because you can get the, the larger um, pouches with, you know, so you get more pitch capacity for each pouch. And from a dollar, I guess, dollar for dollar perspective, you get a little bit more value out of it. That's another important aspect i think to a, a logger is that you want to pitch heavy you, you know you don't want to yep. pitch like again you want to keep the strain off the yeast i mentioned that i'm sipping a, a homebrewed hefeweizen right now homebrewed hefeweizen is the opposite you kind of you don't want to like under under pitch it but you don't want to you want to give the yeast a little bit of a of a struggle in a hefeweizen to help add to the banana clove phenolics well the yep. opposite is true in a hefe or i'm sorry in a, in a hellas or an oktoberfest so I pitched with two pouches of the uh, of the Weinstef um, on yeast from Imperial. But with this Hellas that I did just now, I keep going back to that, sorry, but um, I decided to do a side-by-side um, comparison sort of for my next Oktoberfest to see do I want to do it with the same Weinstefan Imperial strain or do I want to switch over to the Augustina strain that's also available. There's an L17 and an L13, so I'm testing them both out side-by-side with the same recipe. Yeah, and and so because you're using the imperial pouches, you're not doing a starter because when I've done loggers specifically with liquid yeast, I I've done as big as a three liter starter to get them going. Just because you just like you said, you don't want to strain the yeast. You want it to take off as fast as possible, and especially at those low temperatures, you you you've got to really get a good pitch in there. Are, are mm-hmm. you are you making a starter, or are you just uh, throwing the pouch right in there? Yeah, so I use the two pouches and I do not do a starter. I go back to that concept of um, judicious reasonableness around what I have time to do, sometimes around homebrewing. And what I've discovered is that two of those pouches um, work great. And because that's I 400 have billion these, sales, that's, that's, that's a, a lot of huge sales. pitch. Yeah, that's a yeah, huge yeah. pitch. Yeah, and, and then from there, again, I mentioned that those bucket fermenters, and they have those, those tops that lift right off, right? So from yeah. there... I, you know, maintain very uh, strict cleanliness throughout the, the, the packaging process. And when I get down to the very end, that I go through an, an assiduous process of harvesting 
the yeast. So it's my expectation that I'm going to get multiple brews out of both of these pouches. That both, you know, both these two different styles of which I bought two pouches each, right? The L17 and the L13. So I will harvest those and utilize those for multiple iterations of beers going forward. Yeah. And uh and then let's let's talk a bit about you know you you've got the cold conditioning and carbonation are you doing any type of are are you are you spunding these beers at all are you doing any type of uh of of that type of of carbonation or are you just using co2 to carbonate them so i uh i i um from a from a packaging perspective i have stuck to the tried and true of putting stuff in bottles it's not really my favorite way i would admit uh, but I can I kind of keep going back to it because it's just easy to take places and, yep. um, I, it doesn't lock me down to always having to be like, well, we're going to just, you know, sit here at my place and, and drink beer. Instead, it's like, I can throw it in a cooler and go visit with a friend or whatever the case might be. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's uh, it's a little bit more traditional to the homebrewing style, the the complete joy of homebrewing type of, of concept of just using um, bomber style bottles or or good twelve ounce bottles so that it's easier to share with friends. I I really like um, I really like bottled conditioned beer in general. I mean, if I were to mention um, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale as being like a great example of a beer that you just can never argue with, you know, or Debel over in Belgium as far as like stuff that shows the quality of, of what a, of a bottle condition beer can be. I don't really find any reason outside of sometimes time and uh, issues around cleaning that would make me want to switch over to, to doing something like kegs. Well, that and just carbonating a beer in a bottle also helps scrub out of oxygen. That that's a big thing that it does is essentially you're, you're just kind of doing a, a like little mini ferment, a second fermentation in a way. And then, Yeah, and and also I just the bubbles in a in a bottle conditioned beer. I know that if you do a side by side blind tasting, most people can't tell. But to me, and this is just a personal opinion, I can taste the difference. I think that specifically Belgian styles, I think, have a certain carbonation when they're bottle conditioned that's just amazing. And so for me, it, it, those are the type of things that I, I love bottle conditioned beers as well. I don't bottle condition a lot of them, but uh, when I do, I love them. So. And, you know, there's also that thing of added health benefits, supposedly, right, from the yeast that you get to ingest. Um, now, as homebrewers, I guess we wouldn't really avoid that um, or eliminate that even in a kegged, uh, a kegged beer. But still, it's like, again, if I'm looking at my Hefeweizen and then I poured and I poured it sort of in the traditional way that Germans uh, pour their Hefeweizen and to make sure you get the nice swirl at the end and and pour the last bit of the, of the uh, yeast into the, into the glass so that you make sure you have it all in there. Um, it's part of the experience and I enjoy that experience. Again, I, I go back to that part where I, I fell in love with the way that beer looks. And, um, and so I, I kind of always try to emulate that. I, I agree. I completely agree. I think, uh, we, with our eyes, as much as we eat with our, our mouths. Right. And, mm-hmm. th- and this comes from my years in the restaurant business with food, but it's also the same with beer. If I'm looking at a, a beer style that I expect to be crystal clear and beautiful, that that's what I expect. And that's what I, I, I my wife laughing at me when I'm in the kitchen, looking at my beer through the light to make sure that it has the, the you know, the brilliance I'm looking for. Or if I'm making a hazy IPA, I want it to look like orange juice, right? The point is, is that 
you you gotta you, it, whatever that style is you gotta make it look the way it's supposed to so that it's true to style and and you're trying to mimic something and it's it's gonna be a beautiful thing so i completely agree with you i couldn't agree with you more <laughs> <laughs> well thomas let, let's let I, i'd love to you know, find out what's the best place to find your book. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. If you're listening to this to get a, a bit deeper dive, uh, can we find it on Amazon or there, or do you have any local retailers that you might uh, have your book at? So um, it's, I'm not in retailers yet. That's proven to be a little more, a, a little bit more elusive. Um, selling through bookstores is more challenging, unfortunately, mm-hmm. than I would like to uh, admit it. Um, the, the places where you can easily access my book, one would be my, uh, my author website, which is, uh, my name, Thomas J Miller author.com. And then, um, if you, if you order from my author website, I do sign those books for each book that's ordered and I'll send them right to you. It's free shipping. Um, so it's equivalent to buying on, on Amazon. Um, it is available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble. If there are people out there that happen to work in bookstores um, or are librarians, uh, the book is also available through those major sites that allow for wholesale purchases of books to be put in bookstores and to be put in to uh, libraries, so such as Ingram or Baker and Taylor. Um, uh, but continue to work on spreading the word. You know, it's it's uh, this is the first novel um, reminding the listeners. Uh, it's called an Oktoberfest Death. Uh, I'm in the, the editing process right now of the second in the series, and I'll continue following um, Bethany now into the American craft beer scene. So, you know, that that'll, the American craft beer scene will sort of surround the adventures that she finds herself uh, involved in. And I imagine that this is going to be um, about a five or six book series when it's all said and done. Awesome. Well, I, I, I look forward to reading the book that is out now and looking forward to reading the future books. I'm actually a very avid reader, so I will read them and very excited. And, and Hey, I'm an avid reader of books about beer and fiction about beer is something that I definitely want to get into. So it, head on over to our show notes. I will put links to his website so that you can get a book and uh, check it out. And Hey, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. If you ever want to come on the show again, please reach out. We'd love to have you. Coulter, thanks so much for your time and thanks everyone for listening. Hope to hear from everybody and please feel free to order the book for you and your family. Thanks very much. All right, we're back and it's time to dive into some feedback. I'm pretty excited about this week's feedback. I got a couple of good pieces and I'd I'd love to dive into them. So let's start with uh, one from Craig. Craig sent me an email. He went over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and filled out the contact form. And he said, hi, love the show. Just listened to the Bottles, Kegs, and Cans episode. You touched on a subject I have often wondered about. When you condition beer in a keg with priming sugar, do you need CO2 to dispense the beer later? Or will the existing carbonation after the two weeks be enough to move the beer from keg to glass? I think that's a great question. And yes, once you pressurize it and you put it on serving, you will be able to pour probably a glass or two of beer. But then at that point, you will have run out of the pressure that is in the headspace. There will still be bubbles in the beer, but the the, the, the P 
PSI in the keg will go down as you pour beers. And so at that point, if you've keg conditioned a bottle, uh, sorry, if you've priming sugar conditioned a keg. So for example, if you've done something like you've spunded a, a keg to carbonate your beer or you've done added priming sugar into it to carbonate it and done it at room temperature, you're going to want to chill that down because then you're going to get more CO2 in the keg in, well, more CO2 in the beer itself. And then you're still going to have to put about 10 to 12 PSI on the actual keg to get it to serve so that it, it goes through your lines and actually fills your glass. So unfortunately, you still have to have a CO2 tank and you still have to have a fridge to, to dispense beer. So uh, we'd all love to think of different ways. There are some cool tools for it. One trick when I take kegs to go is I have these little, they're, they look like, they're, they're basically like, co2 cartridges you would use for like a bb gun and there's a little tool you can get they're about 15 dollars you just buy a, a box of those and you can attach those to a ball lock connector or a pin lock connector and then you just put that on there and that's enough gas to actually push out a keg if it's ice cold when it when it goes out and it takes about two cartridges to push an entire keg so just a quick trick there when you're trying to do something on uh, to go. But if you're going to be kegging at home, you definitely want to put some gas on it. So uh, great question, Craig. Thank you so much for asking. And then I have another piece of feedback. And this piece of feedback is from John Hunt. And here's what he had to say. Hi, Coulter. I wanted to thank you for the wonderful podcast. Homebrewing has been a passion for me from back when I brewed my first batch of cider back in 2008. Sometimes due to my work schedule, it's hard for me to brew. And in 2019, I decided I needed a kitchen dedicated to brewing. However, as I do not have a lot of time dedicated to brewing as it is, and the time that has went slowly, and that time has slowly went into building my setup. Well, in the middle of this build out, that is still not done, I found your podcast. And finding your podcast has been one of the best things that has ever happened to my homebrewing, as even though I have not finished my build-out. I, I needed to ferment, so I made a cider something, and I have only made a few times, but this one is the one of the best batches I've ever met, made. I've also started making some yogurt, and, as, uh, and that is similar to since there are active cultures. I know that I could brew beer at any time as I could and use my normal kitchen, but just that any, it's just that I don't have any free time and I have to spend that building out my brew kitchen. So the cider and yogurt virtually take no time and they're a good fix for me until I finish my brew kitchen. So, hey, dude, finish the brew kitchen, man. You need to brew some beer. I'm kidding, but... Uh, I, I'm the same way. I like to ferment all kinds of things and, and beer is not the only one. So I think that's awesome. So also some projects that I've worked on that are fun and possibly something that you want to talk about yourself. I am back to reading the email, by the way. So first of all, Steinbeer. I made a seven gallon stainless steel pot 
uh, heated the water by putting granite blocks in from the burning hardwood fire. And then I swapped stones using a spatula that uh, I had attached to the bottom of the stainless steel rod. And then I wanted to expand this by replacing the pot with either a stone or wood vessel. And this is one of the most unique beers that I've ever ever had whereas there is a dark caramel smoky notes as well as a light mineral taste so he he's kind of done a beer using granite blocks to kind of get the beer up to that boiling temperature so very very cool number two a double brew fermentation i had no idea how this would work out and i don't really know what to call it so i made a stout and I hit it with double the amount of yeast that um, you would to let it ferment. Once the fermentation kind of fizzled down, I put it back on the pot, heated it up, added a bunch of molasses and granola and oats, and then I let this ferment out and then gave it about a five-gallon into a five-gallon whiskey barrel. This ended up turning out into a really good tasting sour beer with some crazy plum notes. So sorry for the long message. But keep up the good work. Thanks, John. Uh, that second fermentation the project that you've made there is a, kind of a unique beer. I, I, I don't even know what I would call it. Definitely wouldn't call it a stout. but And definitely a very different and unique way to make a beer. But yeah, hey, as long as it tastes good in the end, does it really matter how you got there? I mean, obviously... We want to talk about how you got there, but uh, I have nothing bad to say. I think that that's cool that it turned out and that it's a cool sour beer. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the feedback, everyone. And if you want to leave us some feedback and have it read here on the air, just head to homebrewingdiy.beer. Leave, you, click on the contact tab and you can leave us a note there. Or you could just send an email to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. That's our, our email address. Another way to give us some feedback is on social media, and you could give us feedback there as well. So any way to get us feedback is great. Well, I guess it's time to wrap the show up. I'd like to thank Thomas for taking the time to come on this week's show talk about his book and really do a deep dive in making great lagers and Oktoberfests. I personally love talking about German beers, so it's always a good time. And I think that we had a pretty cool, great conversation. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're on all the socials. Just look for homebrewing DIY, all one word, and give us a follow. It's, it's a good time over there. Well, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week on homebrewing DIY. 